welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Today, as we continue our series through Colossians, we come now to Colossians 1, 24 to 25. So together, let us hear the word of God. Paul wrote, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. This is God's eternal word. May its powerful truth impact our hearts under the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. I imagine if you've had a position of authority... At, uh, at work, for any length of time, you become familiar with workplace politics. Isn't it miserable? You've got a position of authority, high or low, but there's always somebody that doesn't like the way you're doing things, or maybe doesn't like you, and they secretly want your job, or they just want you to be moved out. So, Things begin to happen that are kind of behind the scenes, but they're very real. Some office gossip really begins to increase, or what I would call that smooth slander that leaves a person able to deny everything but spread anything. All of that happens, and maybe even undermining of some of your decisions or statements that you make in meetings and things like that. And you realize as a manager or a leader that Uh, you've got to take some action because your people are being uh, confused and and what what you've been assigned to do is not succeeding. And so for the sake of your people and quite frankly for the sake of you staying in your job, you know that at a certain point you've got to take action. And what you need to do is set the record straight, don't you? And you need to find a way either directly or indirectly to set the record straight and let people know who you are. Well, that was the problem that Paul was having with the church in Colossae. Because there were false teachers who were subtle critics, not only of the doctrine that he had taught Epaphras, who was the young pastor, if you will, of that church, the doctrine of the gospel, the doctrine of of the scriptures. Uh, They were not only undermining the doctrine, but they were also disparaging Paul's character. His character is a spiritual leader. Many commentators look at the next section of Scripture we're going to enter into, Colossians 1, 24, all the way to chapter 2 and verse 5, as a sweep of Scripture in which Paul takes a moment, as he's dictating this, by the way, he wasn't writing it, he was walking, uh, pacing in a prison cell with a Roman guard literally handcuffed to him, imagine that. And there was one of Paul's team writing out the... uh, the epistle Paul dictated because his eyesight was failing due to his suffering in the ministry. 
and his uh, ability to write had been challenged because of the, the beatings and things that he took. And so at this point he got to dictating his letters. So he's walking across the floor of that prison room and he's dictating it. And as he's talked about the majesty of the, the greatness of the doctrine of Christ that he was defending to the Colossians, that was Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, which we just finished, where Paul made this sweeping defense of the greatness of Christ, the deity of Christ, and the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice for all of our sin. He pauses here and he seems to change tracks a little bit. And in verses 24, verse 24 all the way to chapter 2, verse 5, remember there's no chapter breaks and how he dictated it and how it was originally written. He goes into a kind of a sidebar, a personal parenthesis, and he talks to them about what he knew was on their minds. And that was how his character has been defamed. Not only his doctrine, but his character and so he begins to defend his calling. We know this because when you take a look at these verses, you see how prevalent he mentioned, the mention of himself is, which is not super characteristic of Paul. He's mostly focused on Christ, on doctrine, and on his hearers. But you see the word I, or I am, or I have, crop up multiple times in this passage. And just follow the I's and the I am's. You'll know Paul is defending himself. It's as if he's saying to these dear people, who had never met him in person, but whose church was planted because of his teaching. Listen, I know what you've heard about people and what they say I'm not, but this is who you know I am. And so he stands, and he defends his ministry. There are four portions to it. In verses 24 to 25, he defends his calling. He talks about being appointed a minister. He mentions that twice. He talks about his stewardship given to him from God. So verses 24 and 25 are about his calling. Verses 26 and 27 are a place where he defines his passion, what he wants to see God do in their lives. This wasn't just a job for Paul. It was a passion. He wanted to see Christ formed in them, and he wanted the riches of the glory of Christ in them to flourish. Then in verses 28 and 29, he talks about his purpose as a pastor and a spiritual leader. His purpose to present everyone mature in Christ for which he toiled and struggled. That was the practical dimension of the ministry that he was having in their lives. And then finally, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, he gives them an insight into his great burden, his great struggle, the fact that they were always on his mind and he was burdened over their spiritual condition. So a pastor's calling, a pastor's passion, a pastor's purpose, and a pastor's burden. And so in this little personal parenthesis, it's, and when you look at it as a Bible student, you see that it builds out like a mini-series on the pastor's life. And so for the next few weeks, I'm going to be calling each message the pastor's life. Paul gets autobiographical. He gets transparent about the life of any pastor because he was the template of all pastors. And so I'll be teaching it as the pastor's life. We'll talk about his calling, his passion, his purpose, and his burden. This applies from Paul to all pastors, all ministers of the gospel. I'll be getting a little autobiographical myself and talking to you as a pastor to people about what I live with and why I serve, why anyone in the ministry does. Today we'll start with the portion in verses 24 and 25 where Paul goes into eloquent description of his calling by God. 
Paul says, I was called. I became a minister. The end of verse 23 sets the stage, and then he explains it in verses 24 and 25. Called and given a stewardship. There are several things about all of a pastor that you can see here. And that he describes about himself, but enshrines for all time in the scripture about pastors. The calling of a pastor. What do you need to know? What does Paul describe here? Number one, it's a call that must come from God. This is verses 24 and 25, but he sets it up at the end of verse 23. He proclaims all of this greatness of Christ. Calls them to stand in the hope of the the beauty of the doctrine of Christ. And stand in the gospel, verse 23. And he says, you stand in the gospel because I've been called to the gospel. And I've been called to preach it to you. Look at the end of verse 23. This gospel of which I, Paul, became a minister. It's almost like he's drawing a line in the sand, knowing that those critics are out there filling his people's minds with falsehoods and gossip and silent slander about the fact that he's not a good spiritual leader and he's not what they need and he's not the person they need to listen to. Paul now says, I, Paul, became a minister of this. Now, let me set the backstory by first talking about the debate that some commentators believe was going on about Paul in the background and then teach the text by talking about the clear distinction of what a call is. First of all, the debate. Commentators believe that these false teachers were undermining Paul's personal authority and exalting their authority. Spiritual leadership is always attacked by people who are false in their character, but who want the glory and the control. They want authority over people. We can see that this was happening in the Colossian church because of what chapter 2 gives us in detail. We're going to go into this further in the weeks ahead, but look at church church at uh, chapter 2, verse 4. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. What were these false teachers doing? They were seeking to delude the church, saying what Paul taught you is interesting, but we have deeper thought, we have deeper understandings that you need to put in place of it. And they were deluding the people. The people didn't know it, but they were being deceived. Paul knew it. So they were using their personal authority, these false teachers do, their gifts at at speech on the platform, their ability to mingle among people and influence through words and, and, and everything else. They were deluding these people with their own reasoning in place of the Word of God. Go down to verse 8. They were also taking them captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. They were putting their own teaching in place of Paul's teaching. They were giving their opinions over God's word. And they were slowly deceiving the people with things that were empty. Not a good situation. And then finally, verse 18, Paul says that they were disqualifying people, insisting on asceticism, that's harsh treatment of the body and legalism, and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by their sensuous minds. There Paul touches the reason they did all of this. They were proud people. They were not born again. That They were seeking to assume spiritual authority, and they were putting people under bondage and deceiving them. Now the way they were doing that was by putting their own teaching in the place of Paul's. At the same time they were knocking down his doctrine, we believe they were also denigrating his character. Behind the scenes, they would say, you know, Paul's arguments, 
may seem good, but they're quite weak. He's not a very good debater. We know he's bad on stage. He's not impressive when you hear him speak. We have deeper teaching and arguments, and so their ego was convincing people. Paul's knowledge, they said, was not sufficient. And Paul had not had the visions they had, didn't have the prophetic words that they had, if you will. He was not up to speed with the latest from God. And of course, there is that small matter of the fact that Pastor Paul, for some reason, is in jail right now. Hmm. You see, they were deceiving and denigrating. They said, Paul is old news. What we have is superior to him. And his character as a spiritual leader, well, you ought to start asking some questions about that. So Paul here says, these people are driven by their ego. They might think they can be good pastors, but Paul begins to say here, I was simply made a pastor. This is important. He goes now into a distinction that's very critical for you to understand about people that claim to have authority in ministry. One of the problems in our world today with a wide open information highway and a wide open mind in terms of people granting other people credibility simply because they have an audience or an appealing voice or a stirring thought is that just about anybody today can appoint themselves as a spiritual authority. Just about anyone today can put themselves in a position of having compelling spiritual truth. Paul said that's not the distinction to look for. The distinction to look for is have they been directly called by God. Paul says at the end of verse 23, they may talk about their authority, but I, Paul, became a minister He repeats it again down in verse 25. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. Very important distinction. Pastors do not take a job. They receive a calling. True spiritual leaders and pastors are called by God. Paul says, I became a pastor. The Greek is deeper. The Greek word is ginomai. It's a very interesting word in the sense that it It talked about being brought into existence. One Greek authority I studied this week put it this way. Ginomai means more literally that Paul became or was brought into existence at a point in time as a minister. He didn't seek this job, but Jesus sought him one day on the road to Damascus. Remember the story? Ginomai means to cause someone to be something. This authority says, Ginnamai can mean to cause someone to be, to make someone to be, to ordain someone to be. And the emphasis is on someone doing this to you, bringing you into it. So Paul says, when he says, I became a minister, he didn't, he didn't say one day, I thought it would be great if I could become a minister. I'm good at this. People seem to like what I say. I like the idea. I like the influence. No, Paul said... God met me and called me into the ministry. He caused me to become a minister. He made me to become a minister. He ordained me, if you will. That's a great distinction. Now we know that this is true. When you take a look at the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 26, this is one of the different times that Paul told that story. Paul was headed to persecute the church. He was anything but attracted to Christ. And then, of course, you know, Christ meets him. The resurrected Christ meets Paul on the road to Damascus. Paul says in Acts 26, 
uh, verse 14, as he's describing his conversion to a pagan king, he says, when Christ appeared to us in mighty glory and when we'd all fallen to the ground, this is Acts 26, 14, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, that was Paul's Hebrew name at the time, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, look at this, to appoint you as a servant and a witness. When Paul said, I became a minister, he's saying, Christ arrested me. <laughs> I was headed in, into an entirely different direction, breathing murder against Christ and his people. Christ arrested me in a moment of time. I was regenerated in a moment of time. I saw him as who he is in a moment of time. And in the next moment, Christ called me into the ministry. He appointed me into the ministry. He says, I appoint you as a servant. That is so important. Paul lived on that for the rest of his life. By the way, it was not an appointment without warning. We'll go into this later, but in Acts 9, as Paul told the story to another group in another way, Jesus told the man that was going to baptize Paul, when you baptize him, know that I'm going to show Paul all that he must suffer for me. Getting called into the ministry was all not glory and great crowds for Paul. It was great suffering. But Paul was called. That marked his ministry. It enabled him to persevere through the rest of his life so that toward the end of his life, in 1 Timothy 1, he reflected on it again. 1 Timothy 1.12 And years later, he's still thankful for the fact that God called him. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Look at that. Pastors are appointed to the service of God. They're appointed by God. To whose service? To their own glory? To their own numbers? To their own crowds? To their own influence? To their own branding? To their own popularity? No, they're appointed to his service. Whatever service God says that pastor will have. Great in number, small in number. Long in duration, short in duration. Relatively easy or filled with pain. He gets to decide what your service will be. You are simply appointed to it. Paul was amazed that this happened because verse 13 says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. I think Paul was looking back from that day and saying, God poured his grace over me, his redeeming love over me, his forgiving love over me, and it's, it's sustained me all the way through because Paul battled guilt all of his life over his earlier days. But make note of the fact that years later, Paul was still in the race because he knew he'd been appointed to the service of God. Now this drew a distinction between him and the ministry wannabes that were shredding his character over coffee in Colossae. Paul was in prison where God had ordained his sacrifice and his service to be at that time. It just reminds me as I consider those that desire ministry and as I've walked through many years now, of ups and downs. 
Looking back, I realize that the ministry is different than any other profession. You don't earn it through going to the right school or tipping the right GPA. It's interesting that half of the guys that went to seminary with me never went into the ministry. Because getting all the way through seminary and doing some preaching and being involved in churches showed them, I really don't think this is for me. Seminary is a good culling ground. No, you don't earn it by going to the right school, tipping the right GPA, and you also don't qualify for it if you have gifts. If you have effectiveness, you don't qualify for it. If people tell you you should go into the ministry, you've really got a gifting or a talent, or people really respond to you, or I think you'd be great at it, you still don't qualify. You don't earn it. You don't qualify for it. And believe me, you don't even deserve it. That's the whole point of Paul's calling story. People... People believe that they deserve the ministry because of their background or their gifting or or what they desire to do. They even have a longing for it. You don't earn it. You don't qualify for it. You don't deserve it even as much as you think you you would desire it. Listen to this. You receive it. Somehow, in some way, you need to know before you go into pastoral ministry that God is calling you to do this. You you won't be able to get a vision like Paul did. Although I've met some that have in some dimension, and even in my life, God has been kind enough through undeniable ways to ensure my understanding of my calling. But oh no. Sometimes it takes us a while to clarify this because you, you might have gone through the schooling and earned some knowledge. You might have qualified because people see gifting in you and say you'd be great at this, and people are responding to you, and you might have even deeply desired it. But sooner or later, a point comes in the life of a pastor when he understands that those are not the essentials. You can only be in this if you receive it. If you know that God has called you and you're doing it for his service, not yours. When I was a very young pastor, I already had a successful ministry going and, and people were responding and numbers were increasing and uh, I went to be ordained by my denomination and it was a very long and thorough process of doctrinal study and, and uh, defending positions and examinations in writing that were lengthy. And then there was the oral examinations by ordained pastors. And they were always done in stages. And I went through my first stage, and uh, I'm ashamed to tell you that at the end of my first stage, the moderator of the ordination committee said, Son, we need to send you back. We need to send you home. We're not ready to move forward with you because your attitude about ministry is so proud. Because you've had some success, you seem to think that you deserve it. And we don't sense enough of the dimension of God's calling in your life. I didn't believe him at the time. But God wasted little time in drilling that into my heart. And over time, I came back. (laughs) And the dimension of calling was clearer. And then over suffering, it deepened to where it had to be clearer. And God, in a very gracious way today, 
has instilled in me deeper still that I'm only in this because he called me. Don't go into it if you're thinking about ministry out of any other sense than that God has called you. There's some famous descriptions by great pastors of the past on this. Martin Lloyd-Jones, maybe one of the greatest English language expositors of the last century, wrote this. The man who's called by God is a man who realizes what he's called to do, and he also realizes the magnitude of the task, so much so that he shrinks from it. Nothing but this overflowing sense of being called and compelled should ever lead anyone to preach. He's so right. Once you get into it, you wish you could get out of it because it is so immense in its difficulties and the the great burden of teaching truth to God's people. Maybe the most famous statement is made by Charles Spurgeon in the 1880s, a great pastor to pastors. People would come to him, young men would come to him out of school and, and, and talk to him about whether they should go into the ministry. He wrote this, I always say to young men who consult me about the ministry, don't be a minister if you can help it. Because if the man can help it, God never called him. But if he cannot help it, and he must preach or die, then he is the man. It's a stiff calling. It's a wonderful vocation, by the way. Joel Beek, a pastor of modern times, reminds us that it's not all burden and difficulty. He said, quote, no vocation on this side of heaven is as privileged or rewarding as Christian ministry. End of quote. He's so right. When you open the word and you see it, bear its fruit in the lives of your flock. When you see Christ be formed in people, when you see men and women come out of darkness under the power of the evangel, and you know that there is a special reward for pastors in heaven, according to Second Timothy, oh, it is a great honor. But it is a call that must come from God. Always insist on that for your pastors. Second, he reveals that it's a call that often involves suffering. Verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Totally, totally different than the Colossian false teachers who were living kind, of, living kind of in celebrity luxury and were traveling from place to place. They just wanted celebrity, but the ministry just brings suffering. By and large, most days are harder, not easier. The ministry is the only work on on the planet that is supernaturally opposed. I've mentioned this to you before. No other human endeavor is opposed by the hordes of hell. Satan is completely content to let every other effort of man prosper. But the church of God, Jesus said, is opposed by the very gates of hell. And wouldn't you think that those called to lead it would taste that opposition? Oh, we do. Paul here talks about three dimensions. First of all, the extent of his suffering. I rejoice in my sufferings. Paul talks about them. The language there indicates that they are his life. But Greek says, I rejoice in the midst of my sufferings. He was in prison at the time. The Colossians knew he was suffering there, but Paul said, my entire experience of life has been suffering. In fact, Paul, it's been said, suffered more than anyone we know in recorded Christian history. That may be true. 
But every pastor needs to know he may have to suffer. Why? Because pastors are called to lead, to be spiritual leaders, to bear the gospel, and to stand for the word of God. To bear the name. And when we do this, we lean into the opposition of a satanically inspired world. God did tell Paul in Acts 9.16, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. It's about the name and pastors lead in carrying forth the name. And so they suffer. 2 Corinthians talks about this. Paul summarized this dimension of suffering. Verse 23, again, he was answering false teachers who were taking apart his ministry long distance in Corinth. Paul draws the line again, and he says, That's who they say I am. This is who I am. Are they servants of Christ? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. Paul hated to defend himself. But sometimes he had to for the sake of his flock. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments. He's in, intimating by their... By, by the way, go ask them how, how many times have they been in jail? It's irony. Far more labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings. How'd you like to live a life when you lose count of how many times you've been taken into a room and beaten? And often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes last one. Three times I was beaten with rods, an unthinkable experience if you know anything about that. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That was the life of a super pastor over many flocks. But it could be the life in part of any pastor over any flock. And believe me, if you know what the church is going through around the world today, beloved, it is the life of a large number of the pastors of churches meeting this morning. The extent of suffering is God's decision. A pastor must accept that God sets the limits. We don't set our own limit as to how much we'll take or what we'll go through. Paul's suffering was so long that toward the end of his life, in order to settle any argument as to whether he was a good spiritual leader, Paul at the end just had to take off his shirt to end the argument. We know this is true in Galatians 6.19. He does that figuratively. Again, defending his ministry. Verse 17, uh, Galatians 6 rather, he says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Will Will you listen to someone because of the number of hits they get? And the thrill that they may give you with new insight or new revelation, I'd rather listen to somebody with a scarred back in the name of Jesus Christ. Second, there's the reason. 
He says, I do all this in part, and I rejoice in part, not only that I'm serving you, but I'm also filling up what is lacking in the sufferings or the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body. Paul rejoiced because he, he, he suffered with a purpose. He suffered so that people could be saved. People could grow in Christ. Churches could be protected. But he also knew that every ounce of suffering he took in was filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. This passage has confused many people. Some people with uh, poor doctrine have taught that it, it, it teaches the doctrine of penance, where Christ's sacrifice for us was not enough, that it was, a, it was a good start, but that we in this life must suffer also, and we must add our Christian behavior to finish our way to heaven. That's completely not true. We know the, the New Testament, the balance of it, the, the whole totality of it teaches against that. We know that Paul had just finished making an argument against that. In the previous verses, he said, You have now been fully reconciled, verse 23, by the body of his flesh through death. God has fully made peace with you. Oh no, all the afflictions of Christ were were, were sufficient. Did not Jesus say at the end, it is finished? So we know that this isn't talking about the atonement, but what what is it talking about? Where Dr. Robertson talks about this in his Greek commentary, and he explains the Greek word here, which means to... When, when Paul says filling up, it was a, a, a word that meant to take your turn or to get in line. That's really, if you take it apart, that's the image of it. What was Paul saying here? He was basically saying that when Jesus was on earth, the world hated him, did it not? The word persecuted him, did it not? Without mercy. The world would have wanted that to continue. I think there were people that hated Jesus so much surrounding that cross that they were disappointed that he died so quickly. That's how much the world hated Jesus. And when Jesus died and rose again and ascended into heaven, the world was not done with their heart of persecution against him. He's not here anymore, but who is? The church of Jesus Christ and those who lead her. Paul was saying, the world still hates Jesus and they're not through with wanting to afflict him. And so what they can't take out on him, they'll take out on us. And particularly, they'll take it out on spiritual leaders. And Paul said, I rejoice in this. I, take, I get in line. I step up and take my turn at taking these afflictions that are going to come until Jesus returns. Boy, that's important to remember. The world has an endless quarrel with Christ. Endless quarrel. Now Jesus predicted this, of course. We know that this is true in the Gospel of John. John chapter 15, verses 18 to 21. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, he said to his apostles. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Parenthesis, what is the church called? God's called out ones. God's elect, chosen out of a lost world. Chosen unto him, but also in the eyes of the world, chosen out, different, belonging to Christ Because you've been chosen out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And end of my my reasoning. You see it, don't you? And it escalates and escalates. He said in John chapter 16, verse 33. 
I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world, but you will have it. The word in Colossians 1, when Paul says, he describes it as afflictions. The word thlipsis in Greek, it meant pressure from multiple sides. Wow. You see, that's what suffering of the church is in any generation and in any culture. Sometimes the pressure is physical and legal and the pressure that leads you to death. Other times it's social and psychological and relational as we're beginning to sense in different sides. It's ours. God said it will happen. You can't adjust society. You can't take legal or other means to press it off forever. It comes to God's churches. And Paul said, I rejoice. I count it an honor to fill up these afflictions. That gets us to the third point, the attitude. He says, I rejoice in this. That's just supernatural. The only way you can do that is by the power of the Holy Spirit. And and we knew Paul was certainly imbued and controlled by the Spirit. But I think it had to do with how he looked at it. You see, honestly, I think the church in America is going to have a real steep learning curve as it grows into affliction. I think that as people look toward affliction or they maybe even sense it because of some of their Christian values, I don't see a lot of rejoicing. (laughs) I don't. I see a lot of anxiety. I see even more fear and I even see some resentfulness. But soon enough, we'll walk into the deeper understanding that it's a privilege. And we'll rejoice. You say, I know it's coming, Pastor, and I'm afraid of how I'll react. It's like a soldier getting ready to uh, leap out into a battlefield. Will I stand? I think the difference is how you look at it. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 41, the Jerusalem church had gone from total comfort and total social acceptance and total prosperity, and in 60 days had gone from that to its leaders being jailed and put on trial. So they went from comfort to total shell shock. (laughs) So you want to talk about a culture having to adjust to suffering, a people having to adjust to suffering. But look what happened to their leaders in Acts 5.41. After being flogged for speaking in the name of Jesus, Peter and the others were released from jail. And the Bible says they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for his name. How you approach suffering in the future determines, is determined by one word that you use in your attitude. Many people are even resentful or fearful that they're going to have to suffer from this culture. That's the wrong way to look at it. Look what they said. We rejoice because we're, we're, we're suffering shame for his name. Christians, Paul, Peter said, should not suffer for things where they're doing things wrong. But if you suffer for the name of Jesus, you're blessed. Suffering is a place of joy when you know you're suffering for him, not from somebody. Maybe the Lord will make that clearer to you. Now we have to hurry. It's the third. 
Paul goes back, and let's go back to our text, and he says, my call is not only received from God and, and, and frequently involves suffering, it's a call that sacrificially serves the church. Verse 24, he says, I was, be, I was made a minister, I was ordained, if you want to translate the word became, I was put into place as a minister, called as a pastor, according to a stewardship from God that was given to me for who? For you, for the church. Pastors are called into ministry to serve churches. They're given to churches. Like I said, lots of people can become spiritual leaders. Sheep are natural and sometimes gullible followers. Back then, these false teachers were traveling philosophers, really. They were trained in debate. They were great on the platform. They knew how to shape arguments because that was admired in the time. And they would literally go from city to city and they would speak in the square and they would get their financial support from people that were intrigued by their message and wanted to hear more. They were traveling philosophers, traveling teachers. Now, if you have an auditorium, an Instagram account, and a YouTube channel, you too can be an assumed spiritual leader. In Paul's time, they went town to town. Now they go phone to phone. Don't you think I'm joking? Some of the most damaging teaching that ever comes into my church comes from people who never attended my church. But how do you discern a called spiritual leader with real integrity then? That's really why Paul is stating all this out. He's trying to show them himself so they'll recognize the counterfeit. Two things. False leaders have selfish ministries with no accountability. Paul said these people are, are deluding you, chapter 2, verse 4, with their own authority. They're deceiving you with their own version of truth, chapter 2, verse 8. And they're dominating you with all these visions and, and other things that they've had. But notice at, in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 18, he says... They are puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind. And then verse 19 says, and not holding fast to the head. They're there for their own appeal, their own payback, their own power, but they are not serving Jesus Christ. So they have selfish ministries and no accountability. What does a spiritual leader with true integrity have? They have a sacrificial ministry with deep accountability. Paul was not there for his own benefit or his own following. He was there to suffer for the church. He was there for your sake. In fact, he repeats the phrase, for your sake, three times in two verses. In that sweep of scripture at any rate. And Paul often suffered. It was sacrificial. Ministry most of the time is sacrificial if you're doing it right. For the church to be founded, to grow, to be encouraged and protected, leaders must often sacrifice. And this is true in Paul's life when, when he was jailed in Philippi. Suffering for the truth. He says, God's using this to build you, church. Philippians 1, he said, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. My sacrifice has helped the gospel move forward so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known Throughout the whole Praetorian Guard, all those guards that were chained to him every day, 24-7. And to everyone else. He says, and later in 2 Timothy 2, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. You want the gospel to grow? Sacrifice for it. The gospel walks on the back of sacrificial leaders. And pastors 
are those special leaders because the gospel births churches and it grows in churches. Sacrificial ministry with deep accountability. Call leaders do that because Paul said, I have a stewardship. A steward was a slave who managed his master's household dispensed resources and handled the servants and handled its business and kept it in order. Paul said in 1 Timothy 3.15 to that church, you are the household of God. So what do pastors do? They're stewards over a household that God has given them, their local church, their flock. They have responsibilities, they're stewards. And Hebrews 13.17 beautifully says to the church, obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Pastors don't serve without accountability, both in their leadership context, but also to God. What a powerful burden. And it's a deep burden. But also, it flourishes with golden growth in the life of a spiritual leader who endures sacrifice and endures sorrow for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of truth, and for the sake of his people. Because the crucible, the place where something is placed in and then pressure is ground into it, the crucible creates character. Spurgeon, who I quoted earlier, also famously said this, I'm afraid that all the grace I've gotten out of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost fit on a penny. But the good that I've received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. What do I not owe to the crucible and the furnace, the bellows that have blown up the coals and the hand which has thrust me into the heat? I'm sure I've derived more real benefit and permanent strength, how true that is, and growth in grace and every precious thing from the furnace of affliction far more than I ever derive from prosperity. So pastors in their sacrifice, all spiritual leaders, elders, teachers, do gain from the trials. Here's the last. Paul finally says that a true pastor has a call that's supremely tied to teaching God's word. Look at the last phrase. This stewardship has been given from God to me for you to make the word of God fully known. What's a pastor's greatest responsibility? Paul told young pastor Timothy, you preach the word. You teach the word. The word must go to a lost world. Paul had a unique calling. He was really the first global missionary. <laughs> and think about it. Jesus said, I'm sending you not to the people of Israel, though they evangelize them when you see them, <laughs> but I'm sending you to the nations. He became the first global missionary, and now we carry his call. So Paul says the word isn't fully made known unless the whole world knows it. And so that's why the task of the church is the same as Paul's then, and it will continue until Jesus calls it all done. Many of our missionaries today that we support are having harder ministries than ever. If you think our social experience in the last 18 months has been harder than theirs, oh no. You think our deprivations, our temporary discomforts 
our anxieties, oh, far worse. Pray for them. Secondly, the word of God is essential to a needy church. The greatest answer to every need and every ministry situation I've ever been in is the word of God. And pastors need to break it open and offer it to their people. Paul told the elders at Ephesus when he was departing in Acts 20, he says, Now behold, I testify to you this day, I'm innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Every pastor ought to want to have that on his tombstone. You can do that if you understand that you're not in the ministry to serve yourself and the ministry isn't about you. Called spiritual leaders serve the gospel. They don't manipulate it. Called spiritual leaders teach the word. They don't peddle it. They don't have brands to build. They have something harder to do, a race to finish. In a world where our bandwidth is clogged with the voices of all kinds of spiritual influencers, how can you recognize truly called shepherds? Paul's given us the marks. They know that they were called by God. They joyfully enter into suffering when God brings it. They willingly live a life of sacrifice for a flock. And they make their life's priority to teach and stand for the word of God. If you see these things in a pastor, pray for him. Pray for him hard and pray him home to the finish. That's what Paul asked Timothy to do for him. 2 Timothy 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I... Am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have loved his appearance.